Hey, I wanted to say just a few things about us going to three services this weekend. Um, we're, we're going to three services just trying to make space um, for COVID. We need to social distance a little bit better. Um, and so this isn't forever. Um, three services will put me in a coma. So... Um, not forever that the, our elder team, we're working at, um, trying to figure out how we can create some more space. And so thank you guys for being flexible and working with us. I wanted to make sure we honor our worship team. They're paying a big price to be here, all three services, and they're doing such a good job. And so if you guys would give it up for them, our media team, greeters, um, multiple people are paying a big price to help us stay safe and continue to grow. And so we just are so thankful and we're a blessed people to have them. Um, the last thing I want to say as always is as we go to three services, things may feel a little bit tighter. And as you know, we're people who like to linger around in the altar. We like to worship a little bit longer. And so if you're in the altar and the Lord's moving in your life, please don't get up and leave because the next service is starting. You can stay right where you are. Um, if you need me to drag you out on the lawn, I will drag you on the lawn and continue to pray for you. Um, but just because the services are moving doesn't mean we have to rush in and out of here. Um, if God's moving in your life, please just stay right where you are. You can stay here while I'm speaking. That's totally fine. Totally appropriate. Amen, everybody. That is appropriate in our house. Okay, let's pray over the word and we'll get started here. We're going to finish Romans chapter one today. Lord, we love you so much. We honor your presence. Lord, you're good to us. We're thankful. We're a thankful people this morning. Your steadfast love endures forever. Your mercies are new every morning. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We acknowledge you. We ask that you would interrupt. We ask that you would cause every truth from your word to pierce our hearts, change us, transform us. This is your time. And Lord, we love your holy word. We believe it to be holy. And so this isn't something we do out of tradition. This is something we do with great reverence and awe as we come to your word and try to look at what you said to us. So we bless you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say amen. Amen. Well, last week we discussed the, the idea that Paul communicated to the Roman church when he said that the Gentiles, acknowledge, they've seen God through creation, but they suppress that truth. Um, and so, again, Jonathan Edwards said that creation was an opportunity for us as created beings to witness God's majesty, God's goodness, His power, His beauty. In other words, had God not chosen to create, we would have no opportunity to witness His divine attributes like His goodness that He puts on display as He creates things like we talked last week about holding a newborn child and witnessing the beauty and the goodness of God. So Edwards says that it's, and, and Paul argued, that it's through creation that we witness the majesty of who God is. Now, there's a counter-argument to that truth. This counter-argument has been around for literally for, for centuries. Um, Augustine dealt with this argument in the 4th century. Aquinas, every major theologian dealt with this issue. And the counter-argument is sometimes called the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, or the problem of pain. And the counter-argument goes like this. If God is all-powerful and all-good, then why does evil, suffering, and pain exist? If God was all-good and all-powerful, then he would be able to create a universe in which there was no pain, no suffering, um, no trials, plagues, those kind of things. That argument is called the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, the problem of pain. Again, it's been dealt with by every major theologian, and it's still argued today. If you pull up YouTube and pull up a debate between a major atheist and a major um, theist, you're going to find 
behind that argument, the argument of suffering, pain, and evil. Now, C.S. Lewis dealt with this argument in his book called The Problem of Pain. And what Lewis said in The Problem of Pain is this. In the fall, he... How did he say this? Um, He said that in the fall, humanity enjoys forever the horrible freedom that they have demanded and therefore are self-enslaved. So the doctrine of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, it teaches that God created men and women with certain faculties. We're created in his image in a way that no other animal is created. And so in his image, we have certain faculties primarily to make moral decisions or to not make moral decisions. And so C.S. Lewis says, in the fall, man rebelled and became enslaved to her own desires and her own wickedness and and. Romans chapter 8 says that all creation groans, waiting for the day when the sons and daughters of God are revealed, waiting for redemption. In other words, creation is cracked. The fabric of creation is broken because God created us with the ability to either love and serve Him or rebel against Him. And we chose to rebel against Him in the Garden of Eden. And what Romans 1 teaches is that when man rejects God, God allows man, the judgment of God is that He allows allows man to have what he wants. So in other words, at the fall, we denied God and creation has been subjected to futility. That's Paul's language in Romans chapter 8. Creation is broken at its fabric because that's what we chose. That's what we desired. And Lewis says that the problem of pain, its primary source is that God in his judgment has allowed us to have what we want. And when we have what we want, what we get is deception, evil, suffering, trial. In John Wesley's words, we sought happiness outside of God. And when you seek happiness outside of God, what you'll find eventually is destruction. And God's judgment is that he allows you to do so. That's what Romans chapter 1 taught us last week, essentially. And we're going to step further into Romans chapter 1 today, and we're going to explore more thoroughly what does it look like when a people deny God as creator. You guys with me so far? Romans chapter 1, we'll start in verse 24, and we'll finish through 32. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. They invent evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So here we find again, which we mentioned last week, the threefold repetition describing God's judgment. God judges the nations by giving them up. 
God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. There's a a threefold thing that's happening there. Paul says the judgment of God on the nations is that God steps back and lets them have everything that they want. Now, with that in mind, if the judgment of God is God allowing us to continue in our own desires, then conviction, rightfully so, should be called a great grace and gift of God. The church should love the conviction of the Holy Spirit because every time God kicks the wind out of you, you should acknowledge that He has not left you to your own devices. A convictionless church is a dangerous thing. When the church in the West has become so feel-good that we've denied and lost the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's dangerous. We should love and savor and cherish the conviction of the Holy Spirit because every time the Spirit pokes you, you should acknowledge He's still messing with you, man. He hasn't left you alone yet. The worst act of judgment on the church would be for God to remove the conviction of the Spirit. And so we consider the words of of Hebrews when, when it says that the Father rebukes and chastises those whom He loves. That God in His great love for us continues to discipline us and encourage us and thrust us towards holiness. And it's been said before and it's it's true that, that every thou shalt not of the Old Testament is an I love you. When God says thou shalt not commit murder, he's not telling you not to murder because he wants to put a grip on your future plans, wants you to be unhappy. He's telling you not to murder because murder is destructive to your own heart. When God says do not commit adultery, he's not trying to squash your sexual desires. He's trying to squash your bad marriage and he wants you to have a fruitful relationship with your wife in the future. And so every parent, I don't let my kids have ice cream in the morning, not because I don't like them, but because it's not good for them. And the moment we lose God telling us what you're doing right now is not good for you, then we're in the judgment of God. Now, the passage today largely describes the consequences of what happens when a society rejects God. Paul says again that God gave them over to dishonorable passions to do what ought not to be done. He continues by saying that women exchanged natural relationships with women and men committed shameless acts with other men. Now, I understand that this teaching is not politically correct, but I'm not a politician. I'm a Bible teacher, okay? And so I have no responsibility to be politically correct. I have responsibility to be honest with what the Bible says. And what the Bible is teaching here is what the Bible has always taught, that God designed man and woman to, in marriage, and in marriage alone, have intercourse and to create children and a family from that union, they say, many say today that Jesus had nothing to say about homosexuality. What Jesus, he, what he said was that marriage is between one man, the man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife for life. That is God's design for sexuality from the start. And so I need to take a sidestep here and to talk about our culture's um, ideas of sexuality and to make sure that we have a biblical foundation. Um, No intent in my heart to be disrespectful at all. Please don't hear that this morning. But I want to be honest for a moment, and we'll try to find biblical truth. Now, 
you understand that in our day, there are many churches that are beginning to ordain um, lesbians as pastors, for instance, or homosexual men. And so there is a clear movement in our society to accept homosexuality as righteous, even though the scriptures um, condemn it from the start. And so those liberal theologians are beginning to propagate arguments to support their position. And now, in order to propagate an argument that claims that the Bible doesn't teach against homosexuality, is to be incredibly dishonest with the text and is also to be a historical revisionist, is to deny the plain history of Israel, which Israel always taught from its beginning that sexual relations was between a man and a woman, is to deny with a historical teaching of the church. The church has never taught that homosexuality was an appropriate practice, and it's to deny the plain teaching of Scripture. And so um, there's lots of movements going around on the internet. I don't know if you guys know, there's a thing called the internet and on the internet, people can say whatever they want to say and call themselves authoritative. Um, so there is a teaching floating around right now, for instance, which says that when G, when, when Moses gave us Leviticus chapter 18 and in Leviticus chapter 20, Moses says from God, man shall not lie with man the way in which he lies with a woman. Man shall not lie with man and the way in which he lies with a woman. Now, there are many today who are trying to claim that what the Hebrews says, or what it should be interpreted, is that man shall not lie with boy. And every time the Bible talks about homosexuality, there's an agenda to try to make that passage now talk about pedophilia. Now, the Bible certainly condemns pedophilia. There's no doubt about that. But the scripture, the Hebrew, never says boy. It literally reads, man shall not lie with man. Um, there... Ah, shoot, how far down this rabbit hole you want to go? Um, there, there, there is a movement, there's a, there's a thing floating around right now where some are pointing to the Martin Luther's German translation, which would be like 16th century, where Martin Luther did use the word boy. Um, but Martin Luther translated that word wrong. It's not there in the Hebrew, and Martin Luther is not infallible. Translations aren't infallible. What we believe is infallible is the original text. And when you look at the original Hebrew, the word boy is not there. When you look at the Greek, the boy is not there. When you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew from the first century, the word boy is not there. It says man shall not lie with man. When you look at the Syriac, when you look at the Coptic, any of these early translations from the first four or five centuries, the, the Latin Vulgate, the word boy is never there. And so there's a revisionist history. What they're doing is changing history, changing what's in the text in order to support and propagate their agenda. And now we as Christians, you have an obligation as a Christian, whether you like it or not, to be honest. The truth matters for Christians. And sometimes that puts you in a sticky position, right? Sometimes you have to say things that are hard, but we have a responsibility to be honest. Now, what Romans 1 says is man shall not lie with one another. The word boy is not there. And it says the same about women, that women shall not lie with one another. And there's so much to say about sexuality in the Greco-Roman world. So many support, they, they, they insert this idea that we are very progressive as a society. And what we know about sexuality, no one else ever knew about sexuality. To claim that is to, again, abandon history fully, right? Like the Greco-Roman world, um, the homosexuality was, was everywhere. In the Greco-Roman world, there were 
relationships between an older man and a younger man that were mentor relationships and sexual in nature. So there was pedophilia in the Greco-Roman world that was accepted by culture. We, we, where we are as a society in pursuing progressive sexuality, we're not even close to yet what the Greco-Roman world experienced. So to pretend like Paul had no concept of sexuality or of a man and a man living together and, and, and choosing to live in such a way that looks like marriage, that's, that's completely historically inaccurate. It would have been everywhere in Paul's day. Yet the church and the Jews, no one ever embraced that as godly or biblical because what they understood is that man created, God created a man and a woman that's plain in the design of creation in order to procreate. And, 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 and the Bible teaches that that procreation should only happen in the union of marriage. So what we started with was a conversation about homosexual marriage five years ago. The conversation was going for quite some time. But the conversation was settled five or six years ago. And the conversation quickly turned to polygamy. Um, there's lots about polygamy happening. The conversation has, whether you want to embrace it or not, turned to incest, whether or not incest should be promoted. And today the conversation is primarily about transgender and gender fluidity. And so you see that there is a progression that happens as a society begins to ignore God. Now... What we want to say again is that we as a people, we reject the idea that as believers, we should ever assault the dignity of a, another human individual. Whether someone is, is confused about their gender or not, that does not negate the fact that they are worthy of dignity because they are created in the image of God and the blood of Jesus was shed on their behalf. And so we as a people are a people who should always be honoring and should always fight for the dignity and the value of any individual who disagrees with us. Now, I want to just say one thing to you really quick. What's easy is to live in extremes. It's easy to live over here and say we hate homosexuals and all homosexuals are going straight to hell. It's easy to live in that kind of extreme posture. It's also easy to live over here in liberal land where just say we just love everybody and we don't care how you live. Do whatever you want and we're going to pat you on the back. What's hard and requires real wisdom and to walk in the spirit is to live in the middle, to live in balance. To say to our homosexual children, grandchildren, co-workers, we love you, we will fight for your dignity, but we believe the Bible and what the Bible teaches is that homosexuality is wrong. It requires great wisdom, great boldness, great courage to live in balance. It would be easy to live in extremes. But we as a people are called to be Bible-believing Christians where the Bible is our authority, but we're also called to live in a society in such a way that promotes the dignity of all individuals. And so I want to encourage you that we as a body are going to be a Bible-believing community. And so at no point will we change our position on sexuality because the Bible is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we don't change our doctrine because the Bible doesn't change. But on the other side, we're not going to allow people to frustrate us and pigeonhole us into this position of hatred and constant anger. We are a people of humility and graciousness and kindness who walk in the wisdom and the love of God as we continue to promote biblical truth and the dignity and value of individuals, even who disagree with us and dishonor God's word. Capiche? You guys, you guys kind of, are you guys okay with that? That it's very easy to to pick a side. Now I want to say this as well. Um, I want to say this. There are um, there are people in our congregation who struggle with homosexual desires. And those people who choose to love God and deny their desires should be the heroes of the church. We should champion them. 
And so we have individuals who are paying a great price to love Jesus. Individuals who would say, I have no natural sexual desire for the other sex. Therefore, to honor Jesus, I'm committing myself to celibacy unless Jesus changes my desires. And I understand that in celibacy, there may be an aspect of loneliness, of family that I will miss out on because I am choosing to honor Jesus. That is a price that they are paying to honor Jesus that those of us who have heterosexual desires know nothing of. And so we need to be very careful not to dishonor those individuals, but to promote, hold up, and support, and champion those individuals because they are paying a price to love Jesus that many of us will never know anything of. And I want to say to those of you who have chose to pay that price, you are a champion and a hero in the faith, and your price that you are paying is so beautiful to Jesus, it is a, it is a worship that I will never be able to offer. That challenge, it presents itself as a beautiful sacrifice that you're able to bring to the Lord that I could never bring. So I understand that it's a challenge and it's a hardship, but it's also a beautiful sacrifice of worship. And you are our hero for choosing to love Jesus, even though there's a great price that you're having to pay. Now, I have a lot to say about Romans 1 verse 32 that I don't have the time to go fully into. But what Paul says is though they know God's righteous decree, referring to his long list of sins, they ignore them, they ignore God's righteous decree and encourage others to continue to ignore them. And so there's something, there's an idea and it's often called theonomy. Theonomy is the study of God's law. So what we believe is that God's law, what Paul just said, is that God's law is holy. It's a righteous decree. And so when Jesus says, for instance, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And in so doing, you will fulfill the law. And Romans 13 says the same thing. If you walk in perfect love, you will fulfill the law. So what does that tell us about the law? tells us that the law is holy, and to live in perfect love is to fulfill the law, and to fulfill the law rightly would be to live in perfect love. And so, as Christians, we don't abandon God's righteous decree. We're not lawless people. There's a really shallow and shoddy teaching which says because we're New Testament saints, we should just totally ignore everything God said in the Old Testament. Not so. What God said in the Old Testament, Paul calls it God's righteous decree. And the way that that righteous decree applies to Gentiles under the blood of Jesus is different. There's no doubt about that. We don't offer sacrifices of goats and bulls because we don't need to bring blood sacrifice anymore. Jesus shed his blood on our behalf. Jews were required to fulfill certain dietary restrictions because the dietary restrictions were intended to create a, a barrier between Jew and Gentile. If you eat a certain way, then you're never going to eat with people who eat a different way. And so a lot of the regulations on Jews was about keeping them separate. Well, here's the bad news. You are a Gentile, so there's no reason in you trying to be separate from yourself. Um, and so the, the, those aspects of the law, are not re- they're not required of us because we're Gentiles. Um, and so I say all that to say, though, to say we don't have to look at anything the Old Testament says about sexuality doesn't apply to us. Paul says, no, it's God's righteous decree. What the Old Testament teaches about adultery, it still applies to you. Those moral principles still stand. 
And so Paul says what you're doing is you're denying the plain moral teaching of God's righteous decree and allowing for things like, um, and, and again, this passage isn't just about homosexuality. It's about not honoring father and mother. That was a really big deal in Judaism and in the New Testament that we honor our fathers and mothers. That, that includes caring for them in their old age. Um, it's a big deal scripturally. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for not upholding that, that, that premise. And so here Paul says that's one of the things that happens when a society denies God is they no longer honor their father and mother. They're deceitful. They're deceptive. And Paul says the law teaches against all of those things and you deny it. And not only do you deny it, you encourage others to deny it. And so there we find Paul in an incredibly insightful way putting his finger exactly on our culture today. Because not only is homosexuality practiced, and not only is it um, accepted widely, now I'm required to also support it. So culturally speaking, everything that I've said today could be classified as hate speech. And somehow in our modern society, I've incited violence against certain individuals by disagreeing with them. And so... um, the, the, the downgrade, the spiral, is not just that we begin to lose our, our moral compass concerning sexuality, but it's also that we come to a place where you, you are required through social peer pressure to acknowledge and support those, to encourage those who deny God's law. Paul says not you don't just practice these things, but you encourage others to practice these things. And he calls it... Um, what he said was that you're inventors of evil. You invent new ways to practice evil, and then you encourage everyone else to practice them. And if they don't go along with it, there's a societal peer pressure. And so everything that I've just said would be considered hate speech. And in some nations, I would be fined or arrested for what I just said. And there's a very good chance that in the coming years, I will be fined and arrested for what I just said in our society. And we as a people, whether you like it or not, if you're going to be a Bible Christian in the coming days, you are going to be pushed into a corner. And that's all right. Christians have always been pushed into a corner. Jesus was pushed in a corner all the way to the cross. Jesus says, this world will hate you because it hated me. Now, what we don't want to do is get backed into a corner and then submit to hatred. Right? We don't want to get backed into a corner and then lose our grace and our kindness and our truthfulness. And so Jesus, when, when, when the Gospels describe Jesus, the Gospel of John, says Jesus was full of grace and of truth. Not that he had half grace and half truth. He was full of both. And so as we are backed into a corner society, in, in our society, we are going to have to learn to be people full of of grace and truth. We can't abandon what the Bible teaches about gender, what the Bible teaches about sexuality, what the Bible teaches about honor. We can't abandon those things. While at the same time, we can't allow ourselves to grow frustrated and get in the corner and become angry and malicious and deceitful and dishonoring. Those things are also an insult to God and the fact that the individuals we're disagreeing with are created in God's image. And so we are going to have to be a people full of grace, full of truth, who are okay to be backed into a corner. It's not the end of the world. It's going to be okay. We're not the first generations of Christians to be disagreed with. Now, we do have a unique challenge in that any time we disagree, we are called those who are filled with hatred. And so we need to be very articulate 
and being able to say to people, I do not hate you. I would take a bullet for you and for you. I disagree with your premises. Disagreeing with someone is not hating them. And we need to be very clear about that. We need to not only be clear about saying it, but we need to be clear about showing love to those we disagree with, right? And so many of you have homosexual neighbors. Many of you have neighbors who are con- or transgender. We need to not only say we love them, but we need to show that we love them and that we'll fight for their dignity and their value and their worth. All the while saying, look, I disagree with your lifestyle. I do not hate you. I do not. We need to be very articulate in that, in that corner that we're being shoved into. And so here we are. What Paul defines is when a society rejects God, it begins to enter into this downward spiral. And in the downward spiral, they lose their compass of morality, including sexuality and other things. They begin to downward spiral. And and at the bottom of the spiral is this peer pressure to affirm everything that's happening in the spiral. And Paul says that, that this is the clear sign of a society that has denied God. And so, biblically speaking, where our society is going, we are either going to self-destruct or we are going to have revival. And so, when people use the term revival or bust, it's a very good analogy for where we are. We are either going to have a move of God or our society is going to fall apart. And now, let me tell you something. It's okay. Even if our society continues to go down this road, we're pressed into a corner. It's okay. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the love of God. We have a commission to continue to love people, serve people, preach the gospel. We have children to raise in the kindness of God and to disciple. It's okay. God is sovereign. It's okay. We don't have to bite our nails and panic. But we are praying for the kindness of God to pour out his spirit and that our nation would turn back to him, um, acknowledging that we are going to be put in some tight positions. And again, saints, hear me say, it's okay. It's okay. I am so honored as a, as your super young pastor, I'm, I'm, I've been incredibly honored um, to watch some of you try to walk in balance with your homosexual grandchildren or children. Or it's, Again, it would be very easy to just say, we, we, we don't want anything to do with you. It's much harder to try to find balance and to try to love people and try to continue to serve people. I want you to know I love you. At the same time, I'm not compromising my convictions. My hope is that you'll return to the Lord one day. That is a beautiful tightrope that we are called to walk in this hour. Okay? I'm asking you to continue to walk on the tightrope. Worship team, if you guys come, we get ready to close. The Westminster Catechism says we were created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And again, John Wesley said the the fall, the crack in society is when we attempt to find joy outside of enjoying God. And so creation, biblically speaking, is broken at its foundation. That truth will stand until the return of Jesus. We are not going to overturn that truth. Um, but what we are a people to do is to be filled with grace, to be filled with truth, to long for the return of Jesus, to hope in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform even those who radically deny him. 
to hope in the potency of the blood of Jesus, which is able to wash individuals that seem to our natural eye to be so far away from God. To God, the one that's farthest away is no farther than the one who seems closest. The, 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 the sinner who seems to live a basically moral life is no easier to save than, this, than the person who lives way far away from God. Neither are even close to a challenge for the power of the Spirit and the potency of the blood of Jesus to wash all individuals. Our hope is in the spirit and in the cross okay we're backed into a corner as we back into the corner we don't lose who we are we continue to hope in the spirit and hope in the blood and that is actually a wonderfully beautiful place to be and the church in that posture is just waiting for the holy spirit to show up and do something so if you would stand to your feet i want to get ready to close We're going we're gonna to worship for just a minute and ask God to continue to fill us with grace and truth for God to send revival. We're going to ask God for wisdom on how to, how to walk in a way that is honoring and loving with those who disagree with us. But I wanted to ask um, Brad to come and share a word that he had this morning. Um, and altar team, you guys can go ahead and get in place if you're ready to pray. Thank you, Pastor. Good morning, Saints. Yes, this week during worship on Wednesday night and throughout the week, um, the Lord was speaking a specific phrase to me, and he said, this is a season. It's time to refire, not retire. And I sensed the Holy Spirit was talking to the boomers and the silent generation, but we're a multi-generational church, so I believe this is a word for everyone. Those who become weary and fatigued in the battle. So I saw people walking through the desert and they were carrying these large sacks of rocks and they were just burdened and heavy laden. And all of a sudden Jesus appeared at a riverbank and he was inviting people to come. And as they came, they jumped into the water and they were completely refreshed. These were people that had been beaten down. So I, spent, I, I sense that he is speaking to those who have lost their hope in the future and have been consumed by their circumstances. He is inviting us to come and be refreshed in the altar this morning. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Are you tired? Are you worn out? Come get away with me and you will recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Learn to walk with me. And I will show you how to do it. And Galatians, Galatians 6, 9 tells us, Let us not be weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't grow weary. So if you need to get in the altar today and drop that sack, you have a physical need that we can pray for, please come. Don't leave this place today without laying those burdens at the feet of Jesus. Amen. There's another word this week that um, there may be some who are beginning to flirt with um, suicidal thoughts the, the the word was it's not like you've you're planning to kill yourself but your 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 brain is beginning to have those thoughts pass through from time to time um, the word was that that god wanted to heal that and bring peace back to your thinking um, to renew your mind and so altar team if you guys would get in place we'll worship just for a moment and if you need any kind of ministry if you need to give your life to jesus today um, confess him as lord um, today's the day um, if you're struggling with any depression if you need to just to to refire, to have the, the power of God touch you. You need to be filled with the Spirit. I want to ask you to come and receive ministry as the worship team leads us just for a minute. And so, Lord, we tackled some tough subjects today. I pray that you would um, you would touch any heart who may have struggled with that. 
Lord, I pray that you would bathe this room in grace. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a people of grace and truth. We don't want to, we don't want to allow your plain teaching to be twisted, but we also don't want to be a people of hatred. And Lord, ultimately our, our hope is that you would pour your spirit out, that you would transform, that you would heal, that you would wash by the blood of Jesus. So we just confess this morning that all of our hope is in you. We have no other eggs to put in any other basket. It's just you, Lord. It's just you this morning, Lord. Hallelujah. So sing for us just for a minute. Again, if you need ministry, please come. Lord, sin revive. Lord, sin we love you. We trust you. Move of your spirit. Heaven break out. Come now in power. Cover this land like you've done it before. Would you do it again? Lord, sin revival. Lord, send it now. Move of your spirit. Heaven break Come now in power. Cover this land like you've done it before. Would you do it again? We love you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Help us, we pray. It's in your name. Everybody say amen. Amen. We love you so much. We pray you have a wonderful week. And we really do. We love you more than you know. We're praying for you. As I worship your majesty, I worship your holy my everything, all that I am is yours, worship your majesty, worship your holy name, Jesus my Yeah. 
手。